Hello, church. My name is Perry, and we will now be reading today's passage from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. Uh, please follow along in your own Bible or on, uh, on the screen above me. Uh, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please, forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning to True North. My name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff here, and I have the privilege of giving today's word. Uh, as you could Tell if you're here last week, we're in the midst uh, of a sermon series on suffering, and it will be leading up to Christmas and uh, how we have a Savior who has suffered on our behalf and can also empathize with our suffering. But today, we're going to take a look and study at the, the person of Joseph, who actually is the son of Jacob from last Sunday, so it's almost like a sequel to what Jay preached on. Um, I'm going to kind of give... A, the broadest overview of Joseph's story. So there are things and little nuances that I'll have to skip over, but throughout the sermon, I'm going to try and summarize his story for us. And, and kind of the thesis of today is this, how has Joseph taught us to trust in God in our own suffering? Uh, when you get home, uh, you can look, at, I, I have this weird, uh, I'm like addicted to YouTube, and if you get home, uh, if you have the chance, look up uh, ISR classes. That stands for infant uh, self-rescue classes. It's insane. So basically, I saw this live once at a public pool. They'll take infants who are like 10, like 10 months, maybe even eight months old, and they have no physiological capability to swim. There is no way. And this instructor will take these infants and literally throw them into a pool, right? So I saw this without context, and I was like, this is child abuse and maybe murder happening, right? But I was like, what's going on? And I was, uh, you know, I, there was like this huge, I think they get sued so much. There's this huge shirt they always wear, this ISR, Infant Self-Rescue. And what their purpose is this. Um, they put these infants in the water, and they literally, at a point, are just, for a couple moments, drowning. Because they have no capability, and they're not helping at all. Now, the purpose that they, uh, the reason why they do this is this. Um, the second leading cause of it, uh, death for infants in America is actually drowning. Um, it's a huge, huge American pandemic. Uh, epidemic, and their whole purpose is this, although they are suffering, although they have no capability to swim, what they try and hope to do through these classes, and it's proven that it does work, that within, if they spend 10 minutes every day for a set amount of time, that these infants can learn through the suffering to float and get their head above water, enough time at least for a parent or guardian to come and save them, right? I'll never do this for my children, because that's just crazy, right? But some people, and if you do that, hey, more power to you. But as I saw that, Live, and I first thought, like, that's insane, and I, and I understood the context, uh, a thought came to me that at that moment, there is no way that eight-month-old, ten-month-old can comprehend why am I suffering, 
Why is there like, you know, that nasty chlorine water entering into my nose? Why is my parent standing aside and this stranger is dunking me in the water? There is no way that they can comprehend the reason for their suffering. But as your guard, as their guardian, as their parent, what they do is they're trusting that this suffering, there is a purpose to that. In that same way, I truly believe that Joseph teaches us a very similar lesson, that there is a reasoning and there is a purpose for our suffering. And I want to be careful here, um, and, and throughout this series, one thing you'll realize is this. Uh, nowhere in Scripture will God give you an explanation for your suffering. I wish he could, and I wish he did. Sorry, not that he could. I wish he did, but he does not. Even in the story of Job, which we'll probably get into, there is no explanation for his suffering. But just like those infants kind of in that ISR class, what Joseph shows us is this. There is not an explanation, but there is a hope to the suffering. That there is a hope that God puts us in suffering not out of punishment or lovelessness, but for our good, as we just read at the end of Genesis. The story of Joseph uncovers how we can trust that God is moving through our own suffering for the good of ourselves and for the good of others. Now, how can I get you to believe that, as outlandish as that seems? Three points I want to make to us today. First is this, that God is amidst our suffering. Secondly, that suffering transforms the soul. And third, that we can learn to trust God in our suffering. But the first is this, God admits our suffering. I, I think what Joseph, the first lesson that we need to understand in the story of Joseph is this. One of the greatest struggles, especially Westerners have, is this. Especially True North, with the a very unique uh, ethnic, for a majority of us, kind of upbringing that we have. One of the greatest struggles amidst suffering is the belief, the false belief, that if you do suffer, God has left you. That if you encounter any sort of pain, any sort of trial or tribulation, that it is something that God has designed for me to get out of immediately. But what Joseph teaches us through this story is this, that God, although he may seem hidden, is present and deeply intimate with God or with Joseph in his times of trials. You see, Joseph, uh, his story is, is a great allegory for why we are so avoidant to suffering. So if you don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph is the youngest child of Jacob, the most beloved child, very clear. You know, the Bible is pretty funny. Last week, um, you know, it said how, like, there's ugly people in the Bible. And, and, and here it's very clear, like, oh, one, Joseph's very good looking. He's very handsome. And he's also a spoiled brat. That's kind of the beginning of the story. And he has this crazy coat. And, and he has this dream where he tells his brothers you're going to bow down to me, right? And he tells them that as a youngest kid, right? If my younger brother, I don't know if he's here, if my younger brother told me that at a young age, I'd be like, no, you're not. I'm going to physically show you that's not possible, right? Same thing happens. These older brothers get pissed off, especially in the culture that they live in. Who is this kid, this baby kid, telling us that we're going to bow down to him? So what happens in the beginning of the story of Joseph is that they plot to kill him, but a couple brothers say we shouldn't do that. So what they do is they sell him off. They send him into exile. And I think that allegory is such a vivid picture of what suffering often feels for us. You see, Joseph is stripped of his identity, his family, his privilege, and his comfort as he's sold off to Egypt. And this is the thing. The reason we think God leaves us in our suffering, the reason we avoid suffering, is this the anguish of deep suffering? It lies in the sense of isolation that imposes on us. 
You know, I, I know many uh, members and attendees here have deeply suffered throughout the last couple of years. And you'll realize this too. One of the, the greatest pains of suffering is not the pain itself of what happened, but the isolation that you feel. That you feel completely exposed, you feel completely alone, and everyone around you is trying to comfort you, but every effort, every word, every encouragement does not hit you because that's what suffering does. It, it leads you into exile. And this is what happens to us because of that. We live in an extremely suffering-avoidant society, right, where any experience of suffering is seen as something that we should do everything in our power to avoid. So much of how we live, of how, where we choose to live, of where we send our children to school, of where we work, of the friends we make, of where we eat, of where we drink, of where we get our coffee, all of that is based upon this belief that we need to do everything in our power to avoid suffering, and that if it comes, we need to get out of it immediately. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm not trying to promote some gospel of suffering that you chase suffering. But I would tell you this. Uh, there is a, a failure that when we live in a society that avoids suffering, that God cannot use that suffering for your own good. Uh, one thing that's uh, pretty prominent and you've probably read about, especially if you're a parent in the, in the last couple of years, is the term helicopter parenting. This idea of parenting so that your child will never suffer if they're under your constant surveillance, right? And, and this is, uh, it's actually crazy. I read this uh, report uh, as I was preparing this, that even now there's often CPS, the Child Protective Studies uh, Services, they're often called if you leave your child alone playing in your front yard for too long, if, if they're kind of walking through the neighborhood, as I used to do as a younger child, and if some older parent finds you, they'll call the cops on you as well. You're socially shamed. That you need to make sure your kid doesn't have any risk of suffering. And a lot of studies have shown how helicopter parenting, how if you control everything for your child, they, there's severe debilitations to their emotional growth, but that's a different thing. But this is the point I want to make. I believe this. Many of us have projected helicopter parenting to God our Father. That many of us think that God the Father that we worship acts like a helicopter parent. That he should be always over us. That he should be always constantly surveilling us. That he should never let us, let us leave the grasp of his safety. And if we do feel suffering, if we do enter a trial, if we have the loss of a loved one, if we lose a job, et cetera, et cetera, then that means, oh, God has left me. We interpret suffering just like uh, we think God to be a helicopter parent or a father. Suffering or pain in that thinking is an indication of God's absence or punishment. But what I want to show you is, uh, is this, that the story of Joseph shows us that God is intimately and deeply there, although it may seem that he's hidden, that especially in the times of Joseph's trials and suffering, that's when God's presence is even more tangible. See, the narrator throughout the story of Joseph kind of leaves you as a reader on edge. Because if you've been following the story of Abraham and his lineage, which uh, Joseph is under, which Jacob is under, which Isaac's under, it's the story of all these men just, just being, you know, messed up dudes. And every character that kind of comes up, you're like, oh, should I hope in this person or not? And the narrator does such a good job of with Joseph that like, this guy is not it. 
he gets sold off when he's 17. And it's not until 13 years later that he enters some sort of freedom in the court of the Pharaoh. If you don't know Joseph's story, um, as he sold off, the first person he sold off to is Potiphar, who's an Egyptian military official. And he actually does his best to be a righteous person, and he makes sure that he doesn't mess up, that he serves him well. But Potiphar's wife, and it's, it's clear in scripture, right? It basically says Joseph was really hot, like a hot dude, right? He's very masculine, good looking. And Potiphar's wife is like, oh, I want that. And she goes to him and is like, hey, sleep with me. And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I don't want to die, right? And because of that, he gets falsely accused of rape and then thrown into prison. In prison, he gets imprisoned with the cupbearer of the Pharaoh, okay? And the cupbearer of the Pharaoh is about to die in prison, but he has a dream. And his dream, and basically he tells Joseph, this is the dream that I had. And Joseph says, hey, I can interpret that. Like, you're going to get out of prison. That's what your dream is telling you, and that you're going to have a chance to re-enter Pharaoh's court. And he says, when you do that, if my dream comes true, because that's crazy, don't forget me. If, if I was in prison and someone was like, hey, I have a dream, you're going to be free. I would never forget them, ever. Chapter 40, verse 23, the, the cupbearer gets out. He did not remember Joseph but forgot him. So two more years, Joseph's rotting in prison, and then that's when he gets out. Now, as you see this story, you're like, there is no way God is present. And that means God has left Joseph. But throughout the story, what you see is this. The silence of God should not be interpreted as the absence of God. He is always speaking, even amidst the silence of our suffering. You see, one thing in Joseph's story that you realize is that God's presence seems to be even stickier with Joseph as his trust for him grows in God deeper in each trial and suffering he encounters in the pit. You see, as, as he's interpreting these dreams, what's clear in Scripture is you cannot do that unless the Spirit of God is with you. And there's all these small things that happen that if, what was a chance that he's thrown into the jail cell as the same jail cell as the one with the cupbearer? What is the chance that he's there and he forgets about him for two years and all of a sudden he remembers? These are all small kind of hints that even in the suffering of Joseph, intense suffering, imprisonment even, that God was with him. What does that mean for us? We know this to be true. In any human relationship, true intimacy, it always begins not with joy, but with shared pain and suffering. That's when the true relationship begins. I've talked about this a lot too. Your marriages, if you are married or if you're desiring to be married, they are not built on the joyful, happy moments. If you ask any married couple that's been married for longer than five years and you ask them, what is the bedrock of your marriage? They're not going to say like, oh, that Oahu trip, was, that's the bedrock. Like, oh, when we had like Nobu Sushi, that's the bedrock. No. Any marriage that's been longer than five or ten years, what they tell you is the bedrock of our marriage is when we're on the, almost on the brink of divorce. The bedrock of our marriage is when we had to deal with the sudden passing of a loved one. The bedrock of our marriage was when we shared suffering so deep that we had no words to even share. That's how intimacy begins. So what does that mean for us to start? We must see suffering as an invitation into deeper intimacy of walking and trusting with God. Do not take God's silence to mean the absence of God. Actually, God uses that silence to speak even louder to us. See, it's always, God is always constantly trying to speak to us, but, and you'll realize this, and I'll share this in a little bit, but when things are going well, when you're living out of abundance, it's so hard to hear anyone's voice 
but yourself. It's so hard to look at anyone but the mirror because you're like, I've made it, I'm doing well. But when you have suffered deeply, all of a sudden you are searching for an answer outside of yourself. That is the reason God often will lead us into suffering. It's an invitation into deeper intimacy. Now, in that suffering, how do we get to a point where, as Joseph at the end of his story says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good? Right? So it's like, okay, I get it. Suffering can be seen as an invitation into deeper intimacy with God. That sounds great, but if it just leaves there, then suffering will be something that we will try and despise. Because like, if that's all we get, what, what more is there? How is it for our own good that God will use suffering? Well, secondly, is this, the transformation from our suffering. Um, some of the early church fathers and mothers, uh, you know, five, like a couple years after Jesus has perished and the church is being established, um, their, their testimony and their sermons are so, they're so interesting because it's so pure. Jesus is all they have, right? The, Christianity is a completely new religion at that time. And one thing that they often use is a term called the gift of tears, that tears can be a gift. Well, what is that? Alan Jones writes this. The, to, the tradition of the gift of tears offers no help with regard to the meaning of pain and misfortune. It gives no answers. Tears flow when the real source of our life is uncovered, when the mask of pretense is dropped, when our strategies of self-deception are abandoned. Trials and humiliations are necessary only insofar as they are the means by which our true Life is uncovered. To come to this place where one is truly alive, one must hit rock bottom. There must be a breakthrough to the place of deepest, the deepest helplessness. See, the gift of tears is this. As we see suffering, not as the absence of God, but an invitation to deeper intimacy with God, as we enter into it with that type of mindset, what suffering then becomes is a transformation of the soul. It reshapes who you think you are, who you thought you were, into who God intends you to be. So in the beginning, we see this. Joseph's story begins with a dream, a crazy dream, as I mentioned, that his brothers will bow down before him. And all throughout the story of Joseph, that dream's kind of there, but you're like, there's no way that dream is going to come true. That was just Joseph being a spoiled brat, being egotistical. And it's kind of a mum's interpretation, but even that dream, it's kind of intended that Joseph thinks that, oh, this dream means I'm going to be the king of my brothers. But the dream does come true, but not in the way Joseph thought. Because at the end, the text that we just read, as Jacob has died, what happens? The brothers bow before Joseph. Not in a way that Joseph is loading his power, but in a way of desperate helplessness. What does that mean for us? You see, there's, there's this passage in chapter 42, verse 9, where Joseph, you know, he's encountered so much suffering. He's thrown into prison multiple times. He's sold and basically trafficked throughout Egypt. He is exiled. He has no one around him that even speaks his language. And all of a sudden, he gets this moment of escape and freedom. When the Pharaoh has a dream, and the Pharaoh has a dream where he cannot interpret, he says, I have a dream of seven fat cows, and all of a sudden these seven skinny cows come and eat them, right? I need help. And I was like, that's a very easy dream to interpret, but okay, he needs help, okay? He needs help, and the, he, he says, cupbearer, do you know anyone? He's like, oh, two years later, I do remember someone. He's in prison. He brings him out, and Joseph's like, 
You need help with that dream? Like, the Spirit of God told me this. You're seven years of abundance and seven years of famine coming. That's a, that's a very easy dream to interpret. But anyways, right? No one could do that? That's, like, really weird to me. But anyways, he interprets it, right? And the Pharaoh's like, oh, thank you so much. I'm going to now give you power. He's finally free. And then his brothers come because there's a famine that comes throughout the whole land. And they're starving. They come to Egypt knowing that this place has power, not knowing Joseph is in power. And they come, and the first thing that they do is they bow to Joseph. And after they bow, 42, chapter 42, verse 9, the narrator writes these important and strong words. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. What is, what is the author saying? That suffering has reshaped and clarified the dreams that Joseph originally had. Joseph thought, oh, my life is to serve myself, just like Jacob, just like Abraham, just like Isaac. My life is to hoard the blessings for my own self. But because he encounters suffering and is faithful through it, his dreams and his identity is completely remade. He is remade into a completely new man. That is the power of suffering. It transforms you. It takes what you thought you were, and when you deeply suffer with God, it reshapes you into who God intended you to be. You know, psychologists even know this. There's a term called depressive realism, and basically what psychologists often will say, I think it'll be on the screen, but this is what they write, that the pleasure in suffering and that's a very harsh term, but the pleasure in suffering is this, that you feel you are getting beneath the superficial and approaching the fundamental. What matters? An ability to see things exactly the way they are. Suffering transforms you by remaking what you desire into what God desires. I always say this, um, you don't really know who you are until you're being stretched out. You know what I'm talking about? If some of us are a little bit older, you know this. Uh, some of us are a little younger in this crowd. Maybe you just graduated college. Maybe you just have a tech job, and you like you think you know who you you think you know what you want, right? Talk to anyone in our church that's ten years older. They'll share with you the lessons that they've learned through their own suffering. You don't know what holds you together until you're being pulled apart. Suffering refines our dreams, our desires, our purpose, and our identity like no other thing can on this earth. Wealth, abundance, blessing cannot do that. Suffering can. There's an author on Twitter by the name of Sherry Ning. Uh, she's a younger uh, Gen Z Asian American writer. She writes this uh, on Twitter, and I found this to be really helpful. There are truly things in life that no amount of motivation encouragement, deep sleep, vacation, or therapy can help you get over. You have to break completely. The only way out is through the other end. That's what suffering does. You know, while we're suffering, and I want to be very clear, I'm not saying to be stuck in the suffering that you're in. You know, Jesus even asked God to take the suffering away from him as this cross is approaching. I'm saying pray that, of course, but as you pray that, also pray this, that, Lord, as I am in my suffering, refine me. Take my desires, take my goals, take my dreams, take my vocation, take my wealth, take my family, and reshape it into your own image. And through that, you will come out a better man or woman, not out of holiness, not out of the sense of pride, but out of a sense of brokenness. You know, I know this too. Uh, I talked about helicopter parenting. Uh, my son and daughter, Elijah, and Sydney, five and four, 
Um, they're finally at that age where they realize an apartment is awesome. There's a bunch of families uh, with kind of kids at around the same age. So there's like this gang now, like, like Stranger Things posse that's going on. And, you know, they're always right outside my apartment. And, I, you know, I realized, like, I told myself I'm never going to be a helicopter parent because that's what my parents were. But it's like, you know, you become what you hate, right? And I, there's always this desire because they're at that age where, like, they're all, like, from ages four to, like, eight. And they have such petty drama, right? Petty drama, right? Like, Eli will always, and Eli always does it. He'll come to my door and be like, Appa, Appa, like, they want my Pokemon card, right? I'm like, then learn how to negotiate, yo. Like, just go out, right? And they always come, and there's, like, there's people that often will try and manipulate uh, my son and daughter to get them snacks. And they'll always come and get it. And there's always a part of me that wants to come in and just, like, go outside and be like, hey, leave my son alone, right? Because I'm like, I don't want him to suffer. I don't want him to be manipulated. But I realize now it's only through, like, this drama, through, like, learning how to reconcile as a five-year-old, through, like, fighting and yelling at these kids, like, and you can hear everything, like, oh, you're stupid, like, you're stupid. You can hear all that, right? It's only through that I realized that I could go out and be like, hey, guys, let's, let's all, like, kumbaya think about this. But I realized, like, it's only through that petty suffering that there's character built. You know what I'm talking about? So now when Eli comes, he's like, no, no, no. He's like, Appa, like, they call me this. I'd be like, okay. I just slowly close the door. He's like, where are you going? Where are you going? I was like, figure it out. Figure it out. Because I know as you suffer, as petty as it is, it will transform your soul. What Joseph teaches us is the same thing. God is using our suffering to uncover who you are meant to be to reshape, to refine, to redesign your identity and your desires. But to what end? If that's it, if that's just, you know, if, if suffering is a self-help program, that's probably not worth the price of admission. But Joseph continues in the end of the story. He says this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The suffering Joseph endures allows him to be transformed, not just so that it's a self-help program, but so that he can now give life to those suffering in Egypt and even to his family. What I'm saying is this. Suffering is an invitation to be intimate with God. And as you're intimate with God, transforms you better into who your God designed you to be. And as that happens, all of a sudden your heart is opened to become a blessing. Uh, as we're meeting in, staff, in our staff meetings, and we always go over our sermons, uh, and Pastor Jay brought this up, and I thought it was very helpful. And he, he mentioned, and he realized, because he just preached on Jacob, and I'm preaching on Joseph. And you realize this, Joseph is the end of the story in Genesis. He's the last story in Genesis. So Genesis 50 ends, and then it gets into Exodus, which is a whole other place of suffering. But as Joseph closes out Genesis, what you realize is, this, why is he the last character in the book of Genesis? Because he is the one who finally reverses the generational selfishness, drama, trauma, and sin of the, of the line of Abraham. Because I wish I could go into every character, but let's just take a look at Jacob and Joseph, because we just heard Jacob preach last week. See, Joseph's trust in God allows him to reverse that cycle. There's no longer an urge to seek blessings for himself as Jacob did, as Isaac did, as Abraham did, but to become a blessing. As the, that's the reason God chose Abraham. I've chosen you so that I will bless you to become a blessing. But in the line of Abraham, they always mess up. Abraham only thinks about himself. 
Isaac only thinks about himself. Jacob only thinks about himself. But Joseph, through suffering, does not. Let's just look at Joseph and Jacob. Jake, uh, Jacob, sibling rivalry, him and Esau, right? Both younger children. Jacob, very deceiving, tells Isaac, hey, I, I'm Esau because my arm is hairy. Bless me because I want all the blessings. Joseph, rivalry with all of his brothers, and at the end, what does he do? He says, I'm going to bless all of you. Jacob is swindled by Laban, you know, given the, uh, as Jay mentioned, the uglier sister, right? It's like, oh, that sucks. Joseph is also swindled by Potiphar's wife and accused of rape falsely. Jacob disguises himself to steal and to hoard his blessing. Joseph disguises himself in front of his brothers to give and to be a blessing. The reason we're transformed, the reason we become intimate with God in suffering is for a purpose, is so that we can become a blessing. That our suffering is a key to bless, to help, to heal others around us. Alan Jones, who I've quoted a lot, he writes this, Tears are cleansing. They wash away the grime of our mis misperceptions and help us to see with a clear eye. But we receive more than clarity with this gift. The will is also liberated for action. When we can see purely, we can also act freely. When we can see purely, we can also act freely. Isn't it striking at the end of Genesis 50, that Joseph, in a place of power, has every right to kill his brothers because they wanted to kill him. But he doesn't. He chooses to give life. God uses suffering to remake us so that our hearts can be open to those around us. That is what Joseph teaches about suffering. So if that is true, how do we do this? And this is my last point, very practical. How do we trust God in our suffering. And I want to leave us with kind of three, you know, pastors love three, so I'm sorry, but three things, okay? The first is this. Um, some of you here uh, are hearing this and you're like, it's a great sermon, but I'm chilling. Life is good. I just got promoted. I have a nice apartment. I have nice coffee in the morning, etc. Like, you know, I drive a Tesla. All, and hey, that's awesome. I'm glad. I'm, and I mean this genuinely. When there are times of blessing, we should be thankful and we should praise that. But, but Joseph's story is also this. It's a reminder to always prepare for famine. To always prepare for famine. Let Pharaoh's dreams be a warning. You know, I think every dream in the story of Joseph is there for a reason. And I also think the dream of Pharaoh, well, one, the dream of Pharaoh is like, it's very easy to interpret. So I'm always like, why did you need Joseph's help? Like, are you that, maybe you're that incompetent, right? But in that dream, I think it's also an allegory of suffering itself. Seven years of abundance, of greatness, of, of the, the, great, the fattest of cows, of, of, the, of the most plentiful of, of harvest. The, you know, seven years of just beautiful bliss and blessing. But it always comes to an end. The famine always rolls in. And what is Joseph's advice to the Spirit of God to Pharaoh and to all of us? To prepare in times of abundance for the times of famine to seek God earnestly even when things are going well so that he can be easier found when things are taken away. Right, if you're like me, and I'll be honest, like when things are going well, like the only person I'm listening to is like myself. Right? Like I'll do all of my spiritual disciplines almost as an afterthought, 
but God is just kind of in the background shining down his nice little rays of blessing to me. But it's also always in the moment of suffering, all of a sudden, then I'm just crying out like, God, I become a monk. I become, I was like, Lord, if you just heal me of this, like I will devote my life. How many of us said that, right? Like I said that so many times in middle school, and now it became true, but I was always like, like, Lord, just like make me pass this test and like everything is yours, right? We always switch from, from black and white into these extreme pendulum swings. But what Joseph teaches us, that especially in times of abundance, to continue to seek after God because the famine in this life always rolls in. And this is the thing, when you're always with God in times of plenty, he's easier found in times of less. Uh, I don't think this is on the screen, but uh, this, this quote rebuked me, um, especially for those who feel like you're doing well. Um, Alan, Jones, who have, uh, Alan Jacobs, who I've quoted a lot, he writes this, you have no tears, buy tears from the poor. You have no sadness, call those who are suffering to moan with you. If your heart is hard and has neither sadness nor tears, invite the suffering to weep with you. Provide yourself with the water of tears and may the poor and suffering and needy come to help you put out the fire in which you are perishing. You know, in times of abundance, it's easy to forget that there is always something we need salvation from. Always prepare for the famine. Second, for those who are suffering, um, for those who maybe recently just loved, uh, lost someone uh, close to you or in your family, to those who've lost a job, to those who just are in a depressive state that no one knows about, and there's no cause, and you've seen therapy, you've taken certain things and nothing is helping, let me speak clearly to you in this manner. Uh, be faithful in the pit. Be faithful in the pit. What I mean by that is this. Joseph, the story of Joseph there is no secret prayer that Joseph prays. There is no secret offering or tithe that Joseph gives that gets him out of his suffering. Rather, Joseph models the small, mundane steps of faithfulness in trials and suffering that often we lack. So meaning this, that you know, when we encounter suffering, so often many of us want that fire to be put out immediately. We pray that, Lord, take this cup away from me. And I told you before, that's a good prayer to pray. You know, any suffering you encounter, we have enough to deal with. Pray that it will be taken away. But as you pray that, how does Jesus finish his prayer? Lord, if it's within your will, take this cup from me. But if it's in within your will, I will follow you. What does it mean for us? Joseph chooses to walk faithfully through the fires that are around him. Small, faithful steps. There's a Christian writer, different guy than I quoted, a lot of Alans today, but Alan Noble, and he's, he's, an, he's a brilliant writer. Um, he's a professor at Alan Baylor, but he has a very public bout of depression, of suicidal ideation, and he tweets a lot about it, right? And one thing he wrote I found to be so helpful, especially when I'm in these times too, he writes this, do not be surprised when you fall into a period of darkness and suffering that you can only move out by faithfully crawling inch by inch by inch by inch. The remarkable thing is that the dread you feel today will be as unimaginable to you in the future as the joy that escapes you feels today. What Alan is saying is this what Joseph models us. And when we're in the pit of suffering and trials, it's the small steps that will get us out. And maybe it'll take 13 years. Maybe it'll take 50 years. But it's the small steps of silence, of prayer, of scripture, of listening to God, 
of communing with his family, of communing with him, it's the small steps inch by inch that allow you faithfully to encounter God intimately in that. Be faithful in the pit. I know that doesn't sound grandiose. I know that doesn't sound fun. I know it doesn't sound like this is the moment I've been waiting for, but that's the truth that God gives us, that in suffering we're called to be faithful inch by inch. Lastly, and I think the most importantly is this, um, as we prepare for the famine, as we crawl out faithfully inch by inch of the pit, connect with others through your suffering. Connect with others through your suffering. It's a gift. I'm not even saying that as a, a thought. It's a biblical truth. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, Paul writes this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The, the gift of your weakness and suffering is the power of Christ. What does that mean? I've always wondered that. One, one uh, thing, as I read Joseph, made me realize this. When Paul says boast in your suffering, that means you literally have to boast and tell people that you are suffering. Why? To, to feel better about yourself? To, to kind of get sympathy and pity? No. Because he says, when you share and boast in your suffering, the power of Christ will rest upon you. What does that mean? Well, one, I think Jesus becomes more clear to you. But second, as you boast in your suffering, the power of Christ is this. You're able to give life to those who are suffering alongside with you. Like, look, if you suffer, you know this. The worst thing people can try and tell you is those who haven't suffered. Right? You know what I'm talking about? If you suffered and you, like, you always feel like, oh, dude, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. It's like, oh, dude, like, you know, my friend, you know, also had this happen. I'm here for you. It's like, great. It's not helping. But when you are suffering, there are moments when you are finally seen. And when there are those moments, it's, the, it's from the people who have suffered alongside you. It's out of their own bravery or courage or even just connection that they share with you. And from that, not that the suffering is healed, but the suffering is seen. And that's what Joseph does. He allows every trial and suffering when he's in uh, Potiphar's household, when he's in prison, he allows his own suffering to be a connection point to those who suffer around him. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the power, that's the gift of your suffering, to be a connection point, to be a healer for those who have suffered around you. And I know this. I've shared this story maybe a couple of years ago, but uh, my wife um, deals with severe eczema and it comes in bouts. And the problem is, man, and like, Everything I share comes from that story because, and even for me, I, I, I don't really know, but being around her so much, I do know. And often people will come and be like, oh, like Sylvia, like, have you tried this lotion? And she's like, no, but I've tried every other, like, she's just like, you have no idea what I'm going through. And we always would hear that. And I remember uh, there was one time in 2016, it was the craziest summer of my life. So many things were happening. At the same time, my wife has one of the worst eczema flare-ups like we've ever seen. Like her skin is peeling off. She, it's sticking to like the bedding. It's hard for her to even move or to get up because her skin will crack and break. And I'm trying my best to be there for her, right? I'm not trying to like, you know, pump myself up. I'm like, I'm giving everything. I'm like praying for her public, like, oh Lord, like heal her, right? And all this stuff. And I, it was genuine prayers, okay? But like, I, I'm there for her, right? And I'm like, you're just like, you know, I'm here for you. And I, I meant it genuinely. And I remember one time she comes out of the room like crying. And I'm always like, oh, she's like, she's gonna acknowledge like, the good job that I've done. She's like, I finally feel seen. I was like, don't worry about it. 
And she like, pulls up her phone and says, like, oh, this. It's like, what? And I looked, and she found a Facebook group of those who have severe eczema. She's sharing posts. She's like, I finally feel seen. I was like, I've done so much for you, right? Uh, internally, internally. But what I realized is this. You know, I, I, I physically cared for her and all that, and it was helpful. And if you suffer, you know that. Those who are with you, it's helpful. I'm not saying don't do that. But there is a deeper level of connection when those who suffered same or alongside you share that and you find a bond. It's different. Like even for my wife, she had never met these people, but it gave her more comfort than any physical, uh, you know, any physical aid that I could do. And you know what? That's what we need to do. That's the power of your suffering, the gift, I would even dare say, of your suffering. It's to connect those who suffer. And on with this. Joseph, as we see, is one who exemplifies giving his life up in suffering to become a blessing. And at the end, he shows grace to his brothers, who he has every right to not, to forgive and to reconcile. And as you read Joseph, and if you know the whole Bible, one thing you realize is this. This sounds awfully familiar to a man born in the line of Joseph, that a couple thousand years later that Jesus of Nazareth comes and he's unlawfully sold, he's unlawfully ignored, he's falsely accused, he's thrown in prison and even goes up to the cross. And in that suffering of our Savior, we receive not just words of comfort as Joseph gives his brothers, but salvation and new life from our sins. That our salvation is born out of the suffering of our Savior. That is the eternal hope that we have. So I, I would end with this. Those who are suffering, those who are going through whatever it may be, I, I ask you this. I cannot give you an explanation for it. I cannot tell you exactly why you are going through it, but I can tell you this, that we have hope, not just in the story of Joseph, but the eternal Joseph, Jesus, who saves us amidst our own suffering, who shares in our suffering as he went to the cross. Turn to him to look for that hope. Let's pray.